Oh, I have a press release here from the Department of the Interior. You know, the big Department of the Interior, it says they found a 570 million year old clam. Yep. Uh, he was discovered uh, 10 miles south of Albany. You know, that may be the same place where I had those clams here a couple of weeks ago. I've had one, I've had at least a half dozen in the last month or so that were at least 570 million years old. <laughs> That's kind of nice. The scientist uh, reported who found this 570 million year old clam, which, by the way, for those of you who are interested in the evolution of the clam, is 70 million years older than any previously known clam. Well, that's a, you know, that's a big thing. It really is. 70 million years you just can't dismiss like a weekend. And uh, this clam was 570 million years old. And uh, the scientist uh, who discovered this clam, fantastic, 570 million year old clam. I, I've, uh, I, I, I suppose I'm exaggerating a little when I say that some of the clams that I've had in various restaurants across the country have been at least that old. Uh, I would say that most of them didn't go over maybe three, 350 million years. I hate exaggeration. I want to get the facts straight here, make everything perfectly clear. Indeed. And, uh, of course, uh, you can always uh, use a little clam sauce, a little of that uh, that uh, tomato sauce, you know, with a little horseradish in that, and cover up the fact that you got a clam that's over 200 million years old. You can sit there and wallow in the tomato ketchup. But uh, this scientist here says uh, the early appearance of the toothless fordilla, which is the type of clam we're discussing, the toothless fordilla clam, indicates that the evolutionary history of clams is far more complex than we once thought. Well, I always thought they were being a little cursory with the clam. I, I, I said there's a hell of a lot more to clams than people have said from time to time. You know, we, we, we tend to think of the clam as just this thing that lays down there and waits for worms to go by, but I say no. I say indeed no. I say also bosh. I said bosh several times lately. They're bosh. It's, it's, it all depends on how well you say it. I would like to salute a man out there tonight, if I may. We haven't done any saluting of outstanding Americans recently, and it's uh, outstanding American saluting time. Would you please? And now this concerned radio station, this media monster, now takes the opportunity as part of its past public service programming to salute an outstanding American of these, our times. Redding, California. A man faced charges today in Redding of firing 17 rifle shots into his television set. In anger over the outcome of a baseball game. Police reported that Gerald Granville Bishop, 42 years old, was arrested after one of his neighbors saw a stray bullet penetrate the wall of her home while she was knitting a pair of light green socks. Didn't you ever want to shoot your own damn TV? Mr. Bishop asked officers when they arrived Sunday to arrest him and put the cuffs on him. He refused to elaborate after he made that statement. 
when investigators found that the shooting with the 30 caliber rifle occurred moments after the San Francisco Giants lost another dramatic televised game to the deadly Houston Astros. So tonight, we salute another American pressed to the wall who took action. As long as there are Americans like Gerald the Granville Bishop of Redding, California, who are willing to take direct action against obvious iniquities of our time, the Republic will always be safe. to do this stuff here at public service all the time. John Gambling doesn't do anything like this. Could you please uh, reset that in there? Please, please, we'll need that. And, uh... <laughs> look, I, I, I didn't invent that article. There it is. I put this in my last file of trivia so that when they dig it up 5,000 years from now, along with the dead clams of our time, they'll uh, know what it was like. But, you know, maybe those of you who are not... Uh, who are not technically minded, do not know just exactly what is involved in shooting 17 shots into a television set at close range with a 30 caliber rifle. Now, this is not a 22. This is a 30 caliber rifle. And uh, that makes a... First of all, it makes a god-awful noise. If you've ever shot a 30 caliber rifle in a living room, you'd know exactly what I mean. It... Uh, Let's put it this way. It's considerably louder than any of the shots you ever hear on television. <laughs> and furthermore, a thirty caliber rifle is a pretty good piece of artillery, which means that uh, that uh, he really gave that TV set almighty hell. That's all I got to say. He just... And, you know, 17 shots. Now, for those of you who know anything about rifles, realize, of course, that uh, unless he was firing a semi-automatic gas-operated rifle with a clip, uh, he had to reload. He didn't simply just shoot 17 shots. You agree with that? That uh, that every 30 caliber rifle I've ever fired, on an average, has a clip that holds anywhere from six to eight uh, 30 caliber uh, shells, and most less than that. So if he shot 17 shells off in that room, yes, he he put two clips in there. Maybe three. Yeah, that's right. It had to be three. So he deliberately sat and he just kept reloading and just kept blasting away. Now, <laughs> 17 shots is a lot of shots with a 30 caliber rifle. And you know, there's another thing about a 30 caliber rifle. It has great penetration power, which means that it not only went through that television set, probably went through the wall, probably passed through the hedges, and continued on for maybe a mile and a half after that, uh, popping holes in whatever it came in the range on the way. <laughs> you know, that takes up even more <laughs> thoughts. Oh, yeah, I, I have. <laughs> for those of you who, who, uh, who've never fired a heavy caliber rifle, uh, that's quite an experience. I, I remember the first time I fired a thirty oh six, or as uh, referred to in, in Army parlance, that's a thirty aught and six. A thirty oh six. You know, it's a shell about uh, three inches or so long, a little, a little more than that, roughly. It's, uh, well, you can figure out how big around it is because the caliber is .30-06, so figure that out. That refers to the how big it is around, right? 
and uh, this was uh, what they called uh, this was what they called uh, uh, extra penetration slugs, which uh, meant that uh, they were kind of sharp, and they they uh, they they went in. And so the first time I fired one of these, I remember laying out on the rifle range. Oh, yes, you get a hell of a kick firing a baby like that. That's something else they don't show in the movies. They don't show the guy, you know, going, you know what, over tea kettle every time he fires the thing, you know, and he gets back up and starts firing again. But they seem to fire from the hip. And I only got to say that if you ever fired a thirty odd six from the hip, that son of a gun would land 15 feet behind you, uh, the gun, you know. <laughs> it really would. So, so, so... Uh, uh, did you know these things, Jerry? You probably thought about them at times. They don't, they don't mean much in the average person's life, the recoil factor of a thirty odd six semi-gas operated weapon. But uh, uh, the idea of you're shooting this thing in the, in, the, in the house at a television set, now that takes a certain amount of, certain amount of daring do. Uh, now, now, wait a minute. You think he's crazy? Not necessarily. I don't buy that. No, no. Uh, I've watched some television, and uh, I, I refuse to accept the fact that he is demented because he wants to shoot his TV set. And his question there was a very good one, well put. He said, don't you ever want to shoot your television set? He asked the officer. Well, that would be a hard question to say no to. That's one of those difficult Solomon-type decisions that's going to have to be made. Now, uh, the next question, of course, arises uh, is, is, is in certain states now, because television, of course, is, is life to many people, uh, that I have heard it suggested. In fact, I know in the state of Pennsylvania it's come up before the, the jurisprudence bodies there time to time that, uh, that the dis wanton destruction of a television set could be, under certain circumstances, uh, of voluntary manslaughter. They haven't gone so far as to call it... Uh, a murder yet, but it's it's getting there. I actually saw that bandied about in one legislative session. Now I, I <laughs> well, I'm just telling you the way it is. I, I don't uh, I don't make the news, and I kind of like the idea. Now you want to hear about the first time I shot this gun? Well, well, I've been lugging it around. I was in the employee of the government at the time, and I, I uh, fairly low paid paid employee of the government, and but nevertheless uh, diligent uh, and. Uh, I wanted to get out of that hellhole so bad that I was in at the time that I, I, listen, I answered the questions. I did some of the best marching you've ever seen. I was snapping them right faces and those about faces and those oblique arches like you never saw them snapped. I was whipping out of those salutes and, and uh, I wanted to get out of the hellhole that I was involved in. The only way I could get out was by passing. And uh, they told us that repeatedly. I, I can remember the address that was given you know, I've always felt, and I've, I've, uh, I've, I think I've even discussed this with you, Jerry, sometimes, that a man with real motivation has the strength of ten. I mean that. A man who is motivated will do it. And uh, the motivation is where it lies. Given enough motivation, you can rise above your lack of talent. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in fact, many people will tell you that talent in itself is just merely a lot of motivation. That, uh, that, uh, that the human mind is capable of almost, and so is the body, for that matter, capable of almost anything, driven hard enough. Now, you can't just say, well, I want to go out and win that race, and so obviously I've got the motivation. No. No, no. That's not motivation, because everybody in the race wants to win the race. Motivation comes from other factors. For example, if you are in the middle of this, this, uh, this uh, 
let's say this uh, two-mile relay, or you're in the middle of this uh, this 440 run with a bunch of other runners, and suddenly you look back at you, and you find that you are being pursued with a very, very fast, by an extremely, supernaturally fast crocodile. Snapping them big old teeth right at your bottom, you're going to find that you're going to run a lot faster than you did yesterday when you were timed out there in the morning just practicing. Motivation. Motivation. That there's one thing winning a race and another thing getting away from a crocodile. you agree with that? So motivation cannot be ignored. Uh, and uh, many of... Yes, the mediocrity uh, is, is really basically a lack of motivation. Many people are mediocre because they can get by with it. They have not been pushed to the wall. Which reminds me, this is WR New York. And uh, I think we have a little goodie here for you. Lay it on the nice people, will you please there? Hey, guess who was in here yesterday? Louis Travisher. Yeah, old Louis comes in and he orders up a valentine like always. And like always, he's got troubles. Seems his wife's mad because Louis forgot their anniversary and she's hitting his hunting boots. Won't give him back. And Louie's all set for a big hunting trip. So I say, Louie, here's what you gotta do. Your wife's mad. You gotta take her a nice present. Like a case of Valentine beer. And he says, Connor, that's the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. And I say, no, 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 wait, look. Valentine stands for purity, body, and flavor, right? The three rings. And there's two more rings than you gave her when you got married. So Louie takes her a case of Valentine beer. Well, I guess it doesn't work out just right, because Louie's wife got madder than ever and threw Louie's hunting boots out of the kitchen window with Louie in them. Some world, huh? Yeah. Let me get you another Valentine. On the house. Yeah, that's very funny, man. Valentine Brewing Corporation, Valentine Bach Beer. Now available, Falstaff Brewing Corporation, St. Louis, Missouri, and other cities. Well, it's Celebration Week every day this week at uh, Huffman Coos, 12 showcase stores in New Jersey and Manuet, New York. And why are they having a celebration? Well, because this week, Huffman Coos is presenting the new look. Hackensack Store, the homemakers, months of planning and renovating have made that fantastic store the most unique, the most... And don't write me in saying there's no such thing as most unique. It's right here on the copy. I agree with you, there's no such thing as most unique, but you write to the copywriter. The most dazzling furniture showcase place in the whole metropolitan area. It's Huffman Coos, and they're having a celebrity types there all this week. And according to this copy, it says, come in, join the festivities. And it says, on hand this evening will be that renowned raconteur, Gene Shepard. Well, am I a raconteur? Is that what you'd call me, Jerry? I always thought a raconteur was an elderly gentleman with a white beard, more along the lines of... Uh, of a Monty Woolley, or uh, you know somebody like uh, like Alexander Wolcott, you know. but then all right, uh, it says uh, you may win a free trip to fabulous Acapulco. Now it, the, the only thing I better point out to you is that I've already been to Huffman Coos, so uh, uh, this uh, spot here is academic. And now uh, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> That's our copy department. <laughs> Anyway, for full details at Huffman Coos, open from 9.30 to 9.30, Saturday till 6. And uh, you can call 201-343-4300 for the location of your nearest Huffman Coos. And why not come out to Huffman Coos in Hackensack? And go in there and talk about the old days when Shepard was there. All right? <laughs> the old days. Uh, do you have another goodie in there? Please. 
now, Mr. Lionel Martin. Mind trying on shoe town stores. <clears throat> I have purchased this time in an effort to combat certain rumors that are being spread about what is supposed to be my secret identity. Now, as you know, in my shoe town stores, I offer huge selections of up-to-date famous brand shoes, which are nationally advertised for much more, and I sell them at my incredibly low shoe town prices. I've been able to do this because of my very close relationship with Super Shoe, who travels the world over, little or no cost. So, let me make this one thing perfectly clear. It would be very easy for me to say that I am Super Shoe, but I am not. Yeah, what are we involved in here? <laughs> Ladies, colorful canvas slingbacks with chunky cork wedge platforms. You know those big chunky cork wedge platforms? You know, they're very handy shoes if you fall in the lake this year. Wearing your chunky cork wedge platform shoes, you can float. Upside down, of course, but you'll be floating. Shoe Town's got them for only six sixty-six. Yes, sir. You can choose red, yellow, beige, navy, ecru green, or white. Canvas, all with cork wedge platforms. Shoe Town's regular low price is eight ninety-nine, but through Memorial Day, these canvas and cork wedge platforms are only six sixty-six. Pick several pair, and you'll float even better. At Shoe Town, all Shoe Towns are open Memorial Day, except where prohibited by law. And angry employees. Well, <laughs> let's see what else we've got here. We've got that shoe town up in Coons. Oh, yes, yes, a touch of elegance. In this erstwhile, mediocre world we're living in, nothing like a little elegance. You don't have to know a lot about wine. That's To know, know the time for Dubonnet is before. It's a little Dubonnet. Before, that's the time to think about some Dubonnet. Little Dubonnet, my friend. This is such a fine little wine. We should go back to your apartment, my dear, and talk about it. <laughs> yes, Dubonnet. Dubonnet. Some people can't spell it. And there's hardly a soul who knows it's an aperitif. But don't let that scare you away. <laughs> no, no, All no, you need to know is this. This is, is the wine that's wine. made to go before lunch. Before dinner. Mm. Just pour it over the rocks. We should have a little soda, soda if you like. About the coffee that's break. Dubonnet before. Made to make what comes after that much better. Will you please get up off the floor, my dear? They are all watching. Get up off the floor, my dear. They are watching. Dubonnet, no, Dubonnet no. Company, New York, New York. Hmm, mm, la piece of ball. Mm -hmm. Terrible things I do here. What is this? It says you deliver in a French accent. This is Indiana French. Uh, you know, while we're on the subject of, uh, of uh, you know, the way life is, and I guess that's what our subject is every night, right? Right? Well, I, I have to salute the, the uh, Wall Street Journal. I don't often salute the Wall Street Journal, which has often done, several times done, interesting pieces on me. Did you see the piece they had one time? <laughs> Boy. But, uh, yes, indeed. Uh, it caused all kinds of excitement. But that nevertheless, oh, yes, when the Wall Street Journal writes about you, there you are up there with the Amex returns. You're mentioned in the same breath with the big board. And that's not quite the same as getting a rave from the Village Voice or the Chelsea Shopping News, I'll tell you that. And uh, I would like to say this about the, the current issue, or a couple of days ago, it was really not the current issue. Did you see the piece right down the main, the main uh, front page there about something that's very close to my heart? And I have, to, I have to salute the journal for this. 
It comes from Bloomington, Indiana. It says the following story, written, it's written by M. Howard Gelfand, staff reporter of the Wall Street Journal. And the headline says, Tuba players decide now is the time to blow their own horns. And the little headline underneath it says, They're abused and underused. So they held a symposium. The fat kid in the back row. The following story is no laughing matter, and anyone who says um papa will be asked to leave the room, for this is a story about the tuba crisis. That is true. It is a very real crisis, so serious that several hundred people began meeting in Bloomington, which is the home of Indiana University and where I went to school, to ponder it. Their purpose, as stated by the conference's progenitor, that's a Wall Street Journal word, meaning the PR man that thought it up, the conference's progenitor, Harvey G. Phillips, is. And here's the purpose of the convention. To redefine the role of the tuba. To reshape the image of the tuba. And the tubist, the player, to improve methods, reading materials, and instrument design. Now, I, I before we go any further in this, uh, I have to agree with this article in the next line. It says, to repeat, this is no laughing matter. But it's quite true. Now, you're going to ask me, and you're getting the natural question to come up is, what the hell do you care about that, Shepard? Well, very, very much. First of all, the tuba played a very prominent role in my life and a continuing role in my life. Now, I'm telling you for a fact. I began to play the tuba when I was in sixth grade. Now, the tuba is not really the sousaphone. The sousaphone is the large instrument that goes over the shoulders. The tuba is an upright instrument, and I'm afraid that the Wall Street Journal uses the terms interchangeably. This is, for, for one thing, this, the very thing that, that players of this instrument complain about is perpetrated in this very article. Now, that's the kind of irony that you constantly run into in life that the fact that, they, that the tuba is called a sousaphone by this article and vice versa shows that this is a crisis. You ha How often has it been that you've watched a man playing a harp and you said, you know, I always like to see a guy play a piano? Rarely. And I would say this, that if, if, if harpists were suddenly being accused of playing zithers or lutes, they would become bugged. They would say, this is a harp. And you would say, oh, well, a harp by any other name is still a zither to me. <laughs> well, uh, ultimately, this shows a lack of respect. It shows a lack of knowledge. And furthermore, it's disrespectful, totally disrespectful to a man's art. And as a performer on both, the, both, I repeat, the tuba and the sousaphone, you notice I use them as two separate instruments, which is exactly what they are. The tuba is an instrument that is often used with, say, such uh, organizations as Guy Lombardo. It's a great big instrument that is... It is also used with most symphony orchestras. It's a large instrument that is usually held on a rack or a stand with a big bell. And the man sits behind it and operates it like a guy operating a gigantic electronic slush pump. He sits behind it. That is an upright tuba. A sousaphone, which was invented by John Philip Sousa is a mobile tuba. It is an instrument that is to be carried. So it is a, it's the big baby that you always see in the marching bands. That is not a tuba. It is a sousaphone. Another instrument. Do you get that Wall Street Journal? I repeat, do you hear me? 
Give me a little echo chamber. Hear this, Wall Street Journal. When you're going to write something, come to the experts. Thank you. Thank God, that clears the air, don't it? They didn't hear. They're not up at this hour. If they are, they're hanging around someplace in Darien. I know that. Eating caviar. You know how these big-time operators are that write the Wall Street Journal. You don't think they're at a party with Plimpton. You know, that kind of stuff, hanging around there, you know, eating fried shrimp and stuff. And here we are working and trying to trying to clear the air of the total, the massive misinformation. Ignorance is everywhere. It's sickening, the, you know, the ignorance. But anyway, I am telling you as a man who from the time he was in sixth grade played the tuba practically day and night. And later, when he went into high school, took up the sousaphone as a separate and distinct instrument, Wall Street Journal. I can tell you that this instrument has played a deep and lasting role in the lives of anyone who have ever seriously played it. For one thing, what happens to you between your sixth grade year and, let's say, your second year in high school? What do you do? I mean, as a person. Grow. That's correct. Grow. Grow. I'm talking about grow. If Bill Bradley had played the tuba and the sousaphone from his sixth grade on upward, Bill Bradley would not only be not on the Knicks, Bill Bradley would have a hell of a lot of trouble uh, getting his pants cut down. Every time he went in and bought a pair of pants, picking them off the gas pipe racks at the whatever place you pick your pipe, you know, the gas pipe racks uh, down to Robert Hall there. For one thing, when you carry a 722-pound tuba, on your shoulder, sousaphone, on your shoulder for, say, four or five years straight. Well, you know how the Chinese, friends, do you know how the Chinese made the feet little there when the, when the people had the feet? You remember when the Chinese went through this foot-finding bit? Well, they simply put very tight shoes on little people. And when they grew up, they just kept them in those little shoes. And by the time they got big, they were wearing little tiny baby shoes, right? And it was considered beautiful by the Chinese. God knows why, but it was. It's no more crazy than the thing we've got on hair. I mean, uh, let's face it, our society's got a hair fetish. It's going real good. Oh, yeah, hair is a, is a big thing today. It's a big issue. Watch any television. For half an hour, you spend 15, 20 uh, commercials. And they refer to a thing constantly called no tangles. Now, tangles seem to be a very big thing in the hair world this year. Last year, it was split ends. I don't know what happened. I guess they don't have split ends this year. They have only tangles. But uh, nevertheless, uh, all these things are part and parcel of the fetish world that we live in, the fetish uh, bespotted world. All right. So at the age of, of uh, whatever you are, when you're in seventh, sixth grade, sixth grade, how old are you when you're six, in sixth grade? How old are you? Twelve? Okay. You'll say that for purposes. That, that is normal uh, when you, if you pass normally, right? Okay. Let's, for argument's sake, some guys are 17, 18, right? Other guys are three or four, depending on how, you know, how, how tough their old man is with the school board. So, uh, nevertheless, there I am, 12, right? And I walk in very innocently into this. Tuba players and sousaphone players rarely are that by choice. Did you know that? Right away, for, for purposes of argument and uh, basic philosophy, I'll point out, right away that affects your attitude. People who are drawn to the piano are, you know, they play the piano. That's it. They want to play the piano. People who play clarinets, 
whine for years. I want a clarinet. They get a clarinet. Almost every tuba player I've ever known was there because of a forced draft situation. That is the truth. I'm telling you the actual fact because I grew up with sousaphone players and tuba players and only after you played this instrument for a while do you grow to love and honor and respect it. And after two or three years of playing a double B-flat sousaphone or an E-flat upright, uh, you get to, to recognize the, the true beauty and the subtlety of this majestic instrument. And it begins to form an integral part of your artistic experience. And of course you realize that around you are sitting the Philistines. Even inside the orchestra of the band are the Philistines. But somehow, there's something always vaguely amusing about a tuba or a sousaphone to even the otherwise totally humorless people. They will laugh. Why? Why? People don't split a gut over some poor fathead that's playing the trombone, and that is a very funny instrument. In fact, it's one of the few instruments that is actually honestly uh, uh, deserving of a lot of raspberries from the crowd, because almost every... That trombone player I ever met was a total fake. You can fake that horn. You can. Uh, you can just, yeah, you can fake it. You will not fake, I repeat, you will not fake a tuba or a sousaphone. There is no way. You've either pressed the second and the third valve or you ain't. You are not going to produce that C natural note <laughs> by uh, faking it. No way. So the instrument also is a mean instrument to play. To begin with, uh, it may not have occurred to you physically. It takes rough, mean people to play a tuba or a sousaphone. Not because it requires that much air. Most people think it requires a lot of breath to blow it. This is a total... Uh, that, that, that's like assuming that because a grand piano is bigger than a baby piano... Uh, or a spinet, that it requires more strength to play a grand piano than it does a spinet. It does not, does it, Degree? No way. In fact, it takes more wind to blow a cornet or a trumpet. Did you know that? Than to play a tuba or a sousaphone. It is not the amount of wind, friends. It is the kind of wind one blows. And you do not get away long with blowing an ill wind into a tuba or a sousaphone. You do not. Uh, another thing, too, is, is the sousaphone has rendered many people, after you have played the sousaphone, and I'm, I'm speaking in this case of the sousaphone, not the tuba, but the sousaphone has rendered people's actual love life. It has changed their love life for years. For one thing, I don't know, you know, we, uh, uh, Michael Caine in the movies. You've seen Michael Caine, you've seen uh, uh, these romantic types, Peter O'Toole, when he is kissing Vanessa Redgrave, if that guy had ever blown through a formative period in his life a sousaphone in actual conditions of combat, you would get a very different kind of kiss. Just by sheer uh, reflex action, after years of working over that silver mouthpiece, when you approach that lovely face, you know, wham, you do it would be much more aggressive. And it's in fact even painful. Do you know that, that playing a, a sousaphone with temperatures ranging between 5 below zero to maybe 20 degrees above in a 45-mile-an-hour spanking crosswind. You learn something about the travails of art. You learn something about 
the difficulties that face the artist. You learn something also about uh, the sheer physicality of carrying around a 72-pound piece of metal on your left shoulder. By the way, notice carefully. I want all of you in the control room to note my left shoulder is distinctly lower than my right. The left shoulder is where the sousaphone is carried. You'll also notice that this thumb, this thumb here, is, is uh, very much different in shape than this thumb. Why? This thumb right here was put in the silver nickel ring that uh, the thumb is inserted into when you are playing the sousaphone in a marching organization. That repeated erosion of the ring on this thumb has produced a, a thumb that looks a little bit like a popsicle stick with a ping pong ball on the end. Now, you, you, you've got to accept these things. Uh, more than that, I, 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 would you please give me a little piece of music there, please? Now watch this carefully. And I'll tell you when to, I'll, I'll cue it. I'll give you the cue. Don't play it yet. The sousaphone and the tuba player also occupy a role musically that affects their attitude towards their life later. Now you're going to say why. I'm talking about musically. The sousaphone player or the tuba player rarely plays the melody. And after all, what is music about but about the melody? In fact, he rarely even plays a hell of a lot, actually. But when he plays, it is crucial. And often he is the butt of jokes. He is the butt of ribald laughter in the band rehearsals, orchestra rehearsals. His, his lot is never an appreciated one. But I'll tell you this, if he louses it up, it certainly has loused up the whole evening for the trumpet players, for the alto players, for the trombone players, for the first violin. If he comes in 15 bars ahead and blows the whole gap, you do not lightly leap into a piece of music with a double B-flat sousaphone. Right? Now... There are other things I could bring into this thing. For example, you learn a lot about just basic rottenness of people when you play this horn. Basic rottenness. It produces men who have a curious, oh, disengaged, a kind of blasé, tired, world-weary Humphrey Bogart. I, I think Humphrey Bogart, if you were to go back into his early life, I'll bet he played the tuba or the sousaphone. He's got the look in the eye. Why? It's the look of a man who has seen too much evil. The look of a man who has seen too much of his fellow man. And with a sort of a half-baked smile and a cigarette dangling from his lips, he strides forward. This is the life of the sousaphone player and the tuba player. Now, why? Well, many reasons can, give you, can be given for this. The, uh, uh, the, the, the attitude that you form towards your life. If, if from the time of sixth grade on, you were, uh, you were used to doing nothing but playing second fiddle. Listen, second fiddle is, uh, is, is way up on the front. A second fiddle, do you hear the expression, he's been playing second fiddle all of his life? Listen, the sousaphone player, should, the, 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 the tuba player should live so long as to get as far up in front of the hierarchy of an orchestra or band as the second fiddle. Uh-oh. Second fiddle. If you were to rank, I mean an actual rank, the various instruments in a military fashion. There would be majors, there would be second lieutenants, there would be colonels, maybe even a general or two. 
you know, if you're playing a piano concerto, the guy sitting out there playing that piano, obviously, he's the general. And you go all the way down through the military hierarchy, down through master sergeant, tech sergeant, staff sergeant, T3, T4, E5, E7, 6SJ7, down to PVT. And then there's one rank below that. Did you know that? Yes. You have to go through basic training to be a private. Did you know that there is a basic trainee? Did you know that that's lower than a private? And then you have a little idea of what it would be like to play the sousaphone. And it's a hard instrument. That's the worst part of it. You're not ranked there because because the uh, instrument you play is easy. It's lightly taken. No way. In fact, many orchestral directors will tell you that the bass section in their organization is the backbone of their their orchestra. But the lights very very rarely reach to the back row there, where these guys are sawing away and working hard and solidly. Now, I want I want you I want you just to hear a piece of music and listen carefully to the bass players for a change. Listen to the fantastic filigree of spectacular musical virtuosity. That they that they display as they as they color the vast painting of this music with rich, deep shades of ironic meaning. Now this is the kind of stuff that Milton Cross doesn't know his you know what from a banjo about. These guys that walk around talking about what music is about. <laughs> what a joke! Music is about musicians playing their horns. That's what it's about. And I want you to listen carefully now, please. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Listen carefully. Oh God! I know the part. I know every note that this bass section is playing in this. The Washington Post marcher. Listen now. Listen. Ah, right on 
Okay. Let Johnny Carson try that. And you guys think that Merv Griffin has got talent. What a joke. What a vapid joke upon the vast moon of man's eternal striving to better his lot on this sad veil of tears. Ah, you know, and by the way, one more thing here. It says, uh, do you know that the current crisis, everyone agrees, can be traced back to two Prussians, a Mr. Stotzel and a Mr. Blumel? Um, I, I don't want to get into that technicality. They invented the valve uh, on the uh, sousaphone, and they were, you know, it gets pretty complicated. But did you know that there is an organization, an international organization of tuba and sousaphone players? That's right. Just like uh, there's the Black Panthers, just like there's the Anti-Defamation League, all of these various things have been formed to protect the reputations and the lives and the psyches of the members who are part of it. And uh, I'm sending in my application. The International Association for the Protection and the Anti-Defamation of Tuba and Sousaphone Players. And that's a very serious organization. And by God, Wall Street Journal, I don't want to hear any more of this tongue-in-cheek writing. Believe me one thing, you talk about tongue-in-cheek writing. Anybody that tries to play a sousaphone or a tuba, tongue-in-cheek, is <laughs> going to be talking with a very distinct lisp for the rest of his life. Especially if he tries the Washington Post March, which we just blew it in. So, uh, I, I just, uh, I just say that, uh, you wonder. Now, I'll, I'll give you other things about the sousaphone and the tubas. I have never in my life seen people suffer more than the bass section that I was part of, the sousaphone section, the day that we had spent on a Thanksgiving Day parade in a driving, cold, sleeting rain for four and a half hours playing Semper Fidelis, the Washington Post march, the NC, double four march, under the double eagle, all these great classics. There wasn't one of us in that group that day, who did not play after the first 20 minutes with advanced cases, almost terminal cases, of cold sores. You get yourself a collection of cold sores that looks like the budding of the roses in the spring. Some I've seen cold sores on a on a on a sousaphone player that went from roughly the the hairline above his eyebrows all the way down to his kneecaps. These are cold sores. And it'll play hell with your love life, too, if you've got yourself a couple of cold sores all through the entire marching band season. What do you look like? You look like any minute now. You, you've caught some unbelievably, total, totally disastrous social disease. So I would suggest you, friends, the next time you see a sousaphone player or a tuba player, you look at that man for what he's doing. He's doing a hell of a lot for mankind, and with no thanks. W.O.R. New York. Next, John Wingate and Nightbeat. To the guest, what do you think of the congressman from Maryland who died of gunshot wounds? Does it appear to you to be suicide? It's certainly suicide, I should say. Unexplained, but suicide. What do you think about the news story that what the Daily News called fat cats in the Republican Party? The rich men blew the whistle on Watergate. That's uh, almost... Old news, except it's not fat casts from the West, it's fat casts from the East. 
And old FBI agents loyal to J. Edgar Hoover also blew the whistle. And are still blowing it. They're going to blow off a lot more before we're over with this. The program is Nightbeat. I'm John Wingate. Wingate's Nightbeat. A double agent? Possibly. We'll find out on Wingate's Nightbeat from Kirkpatrick Sale, who wrote The World Behind Watergate and has a contract for a book on The World Behind Watergate. Later, Peter Joseph, Princeton graduate, young man, the book Good Times, a history of America in the 1960s and what's happening now in the 1970s. Coming, Bill Myers, who continues to run the big ad in the New York Times, calling for, in his words, the impeachment of Richard Nixon. Nightbeat. have nostalgia, whimsy, wit, if you have it and I'm up to it, fun and music. And Mike Tartell from the Broadway play, Smith, just fun later, and your calls, which can be hot and may be fun. Nightbeat. Beat.